Hi everyone, I'm Sky Ross and this is Motherness, a podcast dedicated to sharing mindful and empowering interviews with mothers and experts. Together, we're shining a light on the realness of raising babies and life postpartum, from the first moments to the months following and the years beyond. Motherness serves to hold space for mothers in all their glory, to inform you, to include you, to empower you and to connect you. And despite our different experiences, opinions and approaches, as mothers who love, we are grounded in this together. In today's episode of Motherness, I speak with sex therapist and relationship counsellor Jo Robertson, who is also a mum to three beautiful boys. Jo is hugely passionate about what she does, and for good reason. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with her because I too am a huge believer in women having more open dialogue about postnatal sex and relationships. Jo is bloody funny, completely honest, and wholly realistic of the intimacy challenges many couples face after having a baby. We talk about having sex for the first time after birth, intimacy without intercourse, managing expectations of ourselves and our relationship, causes of low libido and how to improve it, breastfeeding and the sexualization of breasts, advice for partners, and practical tips for prioritizing your other half, and therefore, your relationship. Needless to say, no matter where you're at in your parenting journey, we can all learn a lot from Jo and feel empowered by the knowledge she kindly shares. I also want to take this opportunity to acknowledge the single mums out there. I see you, and I promise there are episodes coming specifically for you too. But I hope you can take something valuable away from this episode regardless. My conversation with Joe is candid and at one point maybe a little too honest for me, but it's real life and I'm proud to share such open conversations with you all. So here's Joe and I talking all things sex and relationships during the fourth trimester and beyond. Hi Joe, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I am so excited to have you on. Do you want to just start by introducing yourself, tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and of course who you are a mother to? Oh, good. Lots of questions there. You might have to remind me as we go along. Uh, so I'm Jo. I'm Jo Robertson. I am a sex therapist and I work in sexual health. I've worked in sexual health probably, oh, it's hard to count, since I was like 17. So oh, well over a decade and 15 years. Yeah. And I run antenatal classes with a amazing midwife called Grace. We run practical parenting antenatal and that basically started out of a deep desire for both amongst both of us um, to have a really holistic class that wasn't just focused on birth and kind of, you know, really brought in all that stuff that happens afterwards, which is often the nitty gritty of life with a newborn. And I have three boys, Jack, who is six and a half, Bo is five, and Danny is two and a half. And yeah, so that's a really interesting time. Awesome. And do you want to just give us, I guess, a quick rundown of what you actually do as a sex therapist and relationship counsellor? Like what, I guess, that entails? Yeah, I, I it's so funny when we when I was doing my training, so I did my masters in sex therapy and right at the beginning they talked about uh, what people's misconceptions of 
sex therapists are and they talked about people imagining that you you know a couple would come into the room and you would actually touch them or watch them have sex (laughs) (laughs) and someone even said you know they think that we will have sex with them like really really creepy weird and so we don't do any of those things (laughs) none at all um basically exactly like you would for someone who specializes in depression um you know people come to see me because stuff's going wrong in their sex life or they, you know, lack confidence. They maybe have some body image issues, but it's particularly triggering around their sex life. So um, that's where they've really seen it as a symptom. And they come because they've got relationship, you know, breakdown issues and they might just want to talk about sex, but it might not be their primary reason, but they go to a sex therapist so they know they can bring up sex kind of later on if they need to. Yeah. So we talk about so many different things. Um, probably the areas that I really specialize in are uh, postpartum. So couples who've just had babies or are in, um, in pregnancy and anticipating what that's going to be, what that's going to look like. And sometimes it's wanting to work through, you know, it's, it's complex, but also simple in that they live with family, like extended family, and they want to figure out how to do their relationship and have a newborn and live with extended family. And so it might just be kind of simple things like that or really complex, like they didn't intend this pregnancy, it was a one-night stand, one of them wanted it, the other one didn't, uh, and they're dealing with, um, yeah, anger, regret, you know, really quite, quite big issues and doing that whilst trying to parent together. And then I do lots of work around betrayal. So couples who, for one person, they have felt betrayed by the other uh, for lots of different reasons and then in painful sex. So that might just be a woman coming to see me and talking about how sex is painful for her Um, or maybe she's had trauma around it and wants to do some processing that. So would it be fair to say that it's both, I guess, about communication, emotional and also physical, like practical advice would that be fair yeah so we talk about a biopsychosocial kind of model so your biology what's happening in your body really really important when it comes to sex so what's happening with your hormones what's your history um what's your mental health because that impacts um impacts how your body functions uh, what medications are you on what contraception are you on so that's all your biology stuff that we really want to get a good handle on uh and then psychologically what's happening to you internally uh so what are your, um, I guess, ideas about sex? What are your attitudes about sex? Uh, have you had any trauma that you need to work through? Um, and then socially, how have you grown up? Like, what did your parents tell you about intimacy or relationships? Uh, were you part of a, you know, religious group that had particular ideas? Um, are you in a culture that's, you know, kind of conservative or makes you feel like who you are is wrong? or what you want to do with your partner is wrong. You know, so biology, psychology of you as a as one person and then socially how have you brought up, been brought up and how is that impacting you in your relationship now? Right. Wow, fascinating. Um let's take it back to I guess before baby has been born. If a couple say has wanted this pregnancy and they are anticipating baby's arrival, what changes can they expect for their relationship and for their sex life, particularly, I guess, within that fourth trimester? 
I mean, what doesn't change? <laughs> I mean, the opposite would be probably more more relevant. Like, what small limited things will stay the same? <laughs> yeah. Um, ev- I mean, everything's up for grabs, you know, when you have a baby. So your body might look different, probably will look different. Um, your It will feel different. Your hormones will be different. So your body responds to sex differently. Uh, You won't get the same amount of time together. You'll be more tired and your body will respond to tiredness uh, in a different way to your your partner and to other people you know. Um, So you can anticipate a lot of change. Uh, And I think that that's probably the best starting place is, hey, this is going to change. That doesn't mean bad because what can happen is that you actually just have to get to know each other more and you have to kind of do a deeper dive into um, your ideas about sex and intimacy, what you want to get out of it, um, what's really important to each person, how you actually do please each other, what you need from a relationship. You know, So change forces us to grow and adapt and evolve uh, in a way that stinks, you know, stagnant would never do so there's something really amazing about that to anticipate um but also hard things you know if you've had a really um let's imagine what's the right word spontaneous sex life where you know you're out for drinks and then you whip it you know whip your clothes off in a car and it's a great time (laughs) you know that (laughs) um probably not that many people have sex like that but if that's been your relationship where it's been really spontaneous you know you've wanted to just you've just gone on holidays with each other when you're tired you've just you know stayed in bed all day that's that's not going to happen you know that time of your life is really finished now (laughs) for probably a decade and that sounds really brutal when you're in your first pregnancy, but it goes fast and you adapt and you create new ways of being together that are equally fun. Um, you know, we just had to put a lock on our bedroom door <laughs> because we're <laughs> often now trying to have intimacy with children awake. <laughs> so that's really interesting. So it's kind of fun, but in a really different way. Um, you know, there's excitement that comes with that too. So I think change is a good uh, first starting place in looking ahead to your future, but not seeing all of that as negative, that you might have to just be inventive. Yeah, cool. I want to quickly talk about hormones because I want to, I guess, set the scene for some more in-depth questions. But how do postpartum hormones affect us sexually? I guess I'm specifically talking about women here. Yeah, so... The two biggies are oxytocin and estrogen. So those are your two. Your estrogen is really your sex hormone. So, you know, in media and, you know, social circuits or whatever, people talk about testosterone and guys having lots of testosterone and that's the, that's the male sex hormone. Um, but equally, estrogen is the female sex hormone. So when your estrogen is high, you're often uh, more turned on and you're often more lubricated, and that's like when you're in in the heat. You know, you're in a hot zone there. And when your estrogen is low, that is a challenge, more of a challenging time for your sex drive and for your body. So when you're breastfeeding, your estrogen is really low. And essentially what that means is that you might not have the same level of libido, but also your body won't produce, like won't self-lubricate in the same way. So you're drier, 
um, and or your skin might feel thinner, it might feel a bit more uncomfortable um, to have sex, to have intercourse. Um, you might just not really get that same feeling of I want to have sex or you might be having sex and then be like, I'm just not really even that into this. Um, so estrogen is low, which means that it's impacting every part of you. Uh, and then oxytocin is a really interesting one. So it's what we call the love drug. So as opposed to the sex hormone, it's a bonding uh, release. So you get it when you're breastfeeding. So you get a rush of oxytocin, which is essentially like a bonding love, um, just a like an affectionate feeling. It's kind of hard to explain, but that's the impact it can have on you. And therefore, women are getting this oxytocin love hit regularly through the bonding with their new baby. And so previously, they would be getting that with their partner. And this is a shift. And that can feel confusing, I think, for male partners it can be like you wanted me before you don't want me as much now what's happening you don't really want to spend as much time with me or whatever however they interpret it um but really it's just that they're getting this huge kind of love hit with their new baby and they're not at all got the same libido um as they did before that before they had the baby um and so that's actually biology that's not how they feel about you, um, that's got nothing to do necessarily with your relationship. It's really about what's happening in their body. Yeah, gotcha. Um, well, let's talk about readiness to have sex for the first time after birth because I think that this is something that just isn't talked about. Um, the general advice or the advice I was given was at six weeks you can have sex again and it was kind of like, it was almost like this milestone that you're working towards and then you get there and you're like, am I ready? Like, how do I know if I'm ready? And when is everybody else feeling ready? So I guess, can you just give a bit of insight in your experience of when most women start to feel ready again? And I guess what's normal? Yeah. Oh, the six week thing honestly drives me crazy. Um, we, we were told that too when we were in our antenatal classes. Um, I think they separated us. So they took the guys out in one room and then all the women stayed in another. And maybe they had another speaker come in. I don't really know, but Dave was told and my husband and I was told with the female group that, yeah, six weeks would be you pretty much ready to go. Um, what was communicated was that you shouldn't try before six weeks. And I think that was kind of good <laughs> because it's really permission giving um, for the woman to be like, no, my body's not ready for this. And I think most women, not all, definitely not all, but most women they want to have in their mind that nothing's going to be asked of them apart from what they're currently giving out. And they are doing so, so much in terms of recovery and loving on their new baby that they are just maxed out. So I think having the, okay, guys, don't even, don't even ask, like don't even go there for six weeks is for lots of people really nice. Um, but it's exactly like what you just said. So it's almost like red light, red light, red light, green light, go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that is just so not the case. And six weeks is just essentially a conversation. That's how I would put it, is at six weeks you start talking 
uh, with each other about how you're feeling, how your body's feeling, talk with your GP, um, you, you know, your midwife, your LMC will probably already have talked to you about contraception, but go there again, you know, really talk about a plan, talk about maybe when you're thinking about having another baby, because that will impact what contraceptive decisions you make. Um, you know, that's really a beginning question mark time. You just start having conversations and then it's a slow burn. So, I mean, I don't really think it's helpful for anyone to go from zero to a hundred in one session. So I think if you're thinking about intimate sessions with your partner, then you want to go real slow. So maybe at six weeks, you're having those conversations, start, you know, making out, having showers together, maybe doing some touching, you know, maybe try this, you know, I'm like sex therapist thinking more graphic ways. So I'm like, start doing some fingering, see how that feels. Um, put a vibrator inside, see how that feels. If it's uncomfortable, just don't do it and wait till next week and then try again. Basically, never force your body into doing something it's not ready for because your body will remember that and it'll probably make it worse next time. So your body has essentially like a, I mean, I'm trying to think about a um, more generic way of saying this. Usually we talk about it as like a pain response or a, or a trauma response, like the body doesn't forget. So if something has been painful before, then it's more likely to clam up again next time because it doesn't want to experience pain. It's doing what it needs to do in you know, su- surviving and coping and protecting itself. So at six weeks, you start having conversations and you maybe start playing around. Uh, I think the shower is a really great place to do that. Um, it kind of lends itself to more intimacy and romance than it does to intercourse. And so doing that, using a vibrator, really, really great. Using just the most awesome lubricant you can find. I have a personal favorite, um, which we can talk about. Yeah, what is your personal but- favorite? Yeah. <laughs> so I really like, it's a brand, uh, I actually don't even know how the real people say it, but it's P-J-U-R, per, um, and it's Body Glide, Body Glide for Women. And it lasts a really long time. So lots of cheap lubes that you get from the supermarket, they just dry up. And you need, if you're going slow and you're doing lots of fooling around and lots of playing and long touching and not going from zero to a hundred, then you need to have a lube that's going to last you a long time and going to last you, you know, 15, 20 minutes and it's not going to dry up in three. So per body glide for women is really, really great for that. And then I think, I reckon just taking all the time frames away. So, I mean, just from a personal perspective with each of our kids, we didn't have actual intercourse for months. But that didn't mean that there was there was a lot of intimacy. So there was a lot of fun, there was a lot of play, and there was a lot of pleasure. But my body takes quite a long time to recover from being pregnant and breastfeeding and birth. And I've just come to know that about myself. And I think as women, if we can give our body permission to heal and not put a time frame around it, then you're going to have a better time. Yeah, absolutely. Can we just quickly talk about breastfeeding? Because for me, this wasn't, I guess, like an issue. I don't really want to like 
name it as that, but I guess some women, if they're breastfeeding, might feel like their breasts are no longer sexual and that they're for baby. It's not something that I experienced, but is this something that they should try overcome or is are you of the opinion that this is something that they just need to potentially navigate with their partner and have a conversation about and I guess reframe that temporarily breasts are for baby and she's just not comfortable with them being sexualized? Yeah, I think that uh, your breasts go through seasons. <laughs> they go through sensitive seasons. And they go through kind of work seasons. <laughs> so, Such a great way to look like, at it. <laughs> yeah. It's like summer and winter, you know. There's a summer season, which is about play. And there's maybe a winter season, which is about kind of getting the job done. <laughs> and in some ways, breastfeeding uh, is a winter season. And it's a work season for your nipples and for your breasts. And I, I would say the majority of women that I have talked to and worked with for that season it's not a sexual time like it's just it's they're just not having a lovely moment with their breasts they're not having you know touch doesn't just just doesn't feel the same and that's totally fine and again that's change but forces you to be inventive and forces you to think differently about pleasure than you did before. So you might have to just be a little bit more creative about your touch. Um, but it's probably going to come back to you. So probably after you've finished breastfeeding and then a few months later, your body will be different already. Um, and then over time, your body will go back to your breasts, particularly will go back to their summer season. They'll probably never look the same, <laughs> but they might start to feel the way that they used to. And that's great. Celebrate that. But it's equally okay to celebrate it in its work season. Um, yeah. And just creativity. Yeah, cool. Yeah, because I think as well, like for me, they still are like, I'm just going to get really personal. I often do this on the podcast. Um, for me, they still have been a really sexual thing when I'm in the moment with Mark and I can really kind of compartmentalize um, and know that when I'm being intimate with him, yeah, that's cool and that feels great for me. But then when I'm breastfeeding her, the thought doesn't even cross my mind. Um, but, you know, I did get this really very graphic reminder one time where I was having an orgasm and suddenly I let down and I just squirted milk everywhere and it just took me by complete surprise. So I guess leading into my next question, what other things like having your milk let down might we expect physically that is different with a postpartum body? There aren't actually that many. I mean, there's hormones, there's your body. Probably one of the biggest things is that your body looks quite different and it can be a real mental barrier for women to get past that. Um, what your, your wounds, if you've had any tearing or if you've had a cesarean, you know, all of that will heal really fast. Um, so by six weeks, all of that stuff should be pretty well healed. Um, if it's not, then you're just going to need some ongoing care, but definitely going to be feeling better quite quickly. Um, and then your hormones, obviously, like we've talked about your, so you were getting an oxytocin release, which is that 
when you have an orgasm, you get an oxytocin release. Well, that's the love drug feeling. Um, and that's exactly the same thing that happens when you are breastfeeding. So you're getting the exact same thing happening inside your body. And, but one is a bonding with your baby and the other is a bonding with your sexual partner. Um, and so that's, I was, that never happened to me, but I was always hoping it would because I thought it would be hilarious. Um, it was wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, like complete surprise. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think prolapse is something that it's it's not super super common, but definitely women experience that. So prolapse, where cervical like cervical prolapse, where your cervix has kind of fallen down deeper into your vagina, um, that would require some medical attention and or hemorrhoids. Definitely something that women talk about and find uncomfortable, uh, and that requires medical attention as well, or just a really good regular cream. Um, you know, there's just these little kind of finicky things that aren't going to make it difficult for you to have sex. You know, it's not going to be that you can't. It's just going to be your body becomes something different to, um, yeah, to deal with. And a lot of that is mental barriers. You know, I think the body probably is the biggest one. It's like, whoa, I, this is how I look now. And this is different. <laughs> yeah, that was my experience. I feel like I um, kind of w- had like a really high libido at like three to four months and then it, I feel like it dropped off and a big part of that was my relationship with my body and I actually released my episode of the podcast this week talking about my fourth trimester experience and how Mark and I had a conversation once where I said to him, like, I wouldn't want to fuck me, so why would I want you to fuck me? And I know that it wasn't anything on him but it was my relationship with my own body and to be honest I kind of tried to give myself a bit mm. of grace and by the time she was 10 months I feel like I got my groove back and I was like oh well I grew her for 10 months so giving myself permission to like wait to feel normal again for 10 months is totally okay um, mm. but that completely resonates with me I think the mental side and just your relationship with your body and the confidence that you have when you're having sex is hugely important. Yeah. And you've lost, not permanently, but you have lost quite a, often a big part of your identity. And, you know, if you were somebody who, who had a lot of value in their work, um, or you played a lot of sport, or you were really social, you know, there's this big chunk of you, no matter which, what issue it is, that can go quite quickly in that first year and that's temporary you know you can you get a lot of those things back progressively as you go along but our confidence is tied to our feelings of satisfaction um, in real life and if we're not getting as much of those then we don't feel as good about ourselves and so how we see our body might really just be a reflection of how we feel about ourselves in general you know if you've had a big job like you know you've been managing a lot of people, you've had a lot of achievement, you've had a lot of responsibility, and then you go to 24-hour care of a baby who just needs to be fed, change their nappy, win them. You know, it's like a huge, big shift. And there can be a real loss there that then you're like, who am I? Who is this person? I don't like this person. Why would you like this person? It is just barrier after barrier there um so having I think you've put it so well having grace like just really giving yourself permission to be different and 
if you're finding things hard, that's just totally okay to not, you don't have to love your body. Like, you know, there's this real movement at the moment, like you have to just love everything about it. And it's just, you know, just see it as amazing. I'm like, I don't love every part of my body. The, The beauty is that if I don't love it, what do I do with that feeling? That's really where the beauty is, not and oh my gosh, my tiger stripes are everything. Oh, hundred percent. Shut up! Like there's there was the bounce back movement where you had to be like, you know, back to your pre baby body, and then there was the well, you're not back to your pre baby body, so you have to love it anyway. And I don't identify with either of those. Like I was like, no. I'm not happy in my body, and I know that I there are things I can do to get back there, but it's just not like up there on the priority list when I'm trying to take care of this baby. Um. So yeah, I I think that's such a great point. No, and we don't like like we don't love everything about our personalities. No, like there's stuff about me and how I respond to conflict or tension or whatever stress. I'm like, oh, I hate it when I do this. So I, I don't like this part of myself. This is a challenge. And so why would we expect to just look at our bodies when we're naked and just be like, everything is awesome? Yeah. <laughs> like it's just unrealistic. Yeah, and just naive when really what makes a true kind of brave warrior woman is looking in the mirror and going yeah I don't really love all of this some of it's great some of it's slightly average but my attitude anyway is xyz you know that is real courage and bravery to me yeah absolutely and I think what's also really brave is trying to communicate how you're feeling with your other half it can be a really difficult thing to navigate and I think none of us are perfect at it maybe you are because you're a professional expert but um, (laughs) we are all I think trying we're always trying to be better communicators right so when it comes to sex and all of these things that we've talked about how if you're if you're the sort of couple I guess where it's not something that you've talked about a lot previously but you're aware that in order to move forward in your relationship you need to start having these conversations. What are some really simple ways of broaching the subject of postpartum sex? I think starting when you're pregnant. So setting expectations beforehand is everything. You know, and that's, we do that in our classes. So we talk about what you can expect from sex and what you can expect from intimacy and the relationship and how it's all going to shift and change around. And then how it will continue to shift and change around when you have potentially your second baby or your third baby or one person goes back to work, you know, all that stuff. So setting expectations, communicating really well to dads that, or actually even if it's a female partner, Like, this is not about you necessarily. So it's easy to feel like this is a rejection, but it's actually just a body shift. So if you can start to communicate that really early, that's going to be amazing. Um, And then making plans. So how are we going to do this now that our life's going to look completely different? And I'm a big fan of, in the first little while, not scheduling sex, but scheduling intimacy. So that might be emotional intimacy. So, you know, we still do this. It's been nearly seven years. And one night a week, every single week, we're still putting our devices away, making sure that we have a drink together, really talking about our work or our week or things we're struggling with, 
you know, maybe we'll eat separately to the kids that night and eat just together. And then if physical intimacy evolves out of that, great. But we make, it's very intentional. We make a plan. You know, we might feel like just going straight to bed and looking at Instagram or whatever. Like Dave would never do that. He would hate that. But <laughs> but it's it's a scheduled. It's intentionally saying to the other person, this is time for you and us to be bonded together. And often when you do that, when you connect with each other emotionally, you want to be intimate. And you often find the whole experience you know, kind of leaves you in a vulnerable but safe place where you feel safer doing physical things potentially. So then you do if it's the night before and they've just said, hey, are you keen? You know, so it's like it evokes a different thing in us. Um, So setting expectations early, being very, very intentional and then having debriefs. So actually having the courage to ask each other, so terrifying, I totally get it, but do you like the sex we're having? Are you into it? Is there anything you want to do different? Is there anything you want to try? Even like when you're, let's say you're just falling around or you've started having intercourse and then it's all kind of going well, but you know you've got a little bit more time in you, you know, like (laughs) no one's about to kind of go really soon. So you can say, hey, is there a new position you wanted to try? Or there's this thing I really wanted to try. And injecting that in there. Um, All of that stuff takes a lot of bravery. Like you have to be really, um, you have to really want a long-term great sex life. And in order to get there, to be like the 60-year-old still having awesome sex, you need need to be like the 30-year-old who's having awesome conversations. Oh, I love that. That's so good. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to talk to each other a lot. Debrief the sex you just had. You know, like, hey, what was like, what bit did you really like? This is the bit I really loved. Or um, was that good for you? Which part was good for you? Uh, asking, you know, at the beginning of the next thing, hey, when you want me to do something more, say, harder, or when you're not into it, just say, nah. Like, you know, just giving each other permission to also then communicate back with you. Um, yeah, so this is really challenging for people. I'm like I'm not gonna I'm not naive to the fact that that's not gonna be really easy for a lot of couples who maybe even struggle to have conversations about dinner, <laughs> and so giving each other you know feedback about dinner can be hard enough, and so giving each other feedback around sex is really really hard. Um, but I guess it's what's the goal for you? You know, is the goal for you to just get it done every week, or is the goal for you to have? great orgasms, great connection, and then be a great role model for the children you're bringing up. I did have a question from a listener who wanted to know about how she and her husband can get back to normal, I guess, in terms of what sex was like before baby or even before pregnancy. Um, And I guess when I read that question, I thought to myself, well, personally for me, it wasn't necessarily about getting back to normal in terms of like the duration or the frequency because we know that we have limited time often as new parents but for me it was more getting back to I guess the quality so what advice do you have for people who I guess wanting to get back that that quality in their sex I mean for me it was having to ask 
for things and communicate during to really like make the most of the short time that we had. So yeah, what advice do you have for women who want to improve the quality? Yeah, I mean, my first, when I heard that question too, I thought everyone's normal so different, that's so hard. But then also, I always want to know how old the baby is. So I'm like, I, you do you have a four-month-old and you're asking when it's going to go back to normal because no, it won't from potentially for quite a number of months, you know, potentially up to two years. So I'm like, I, I, that's kind of where I go to. I'm like, where are you at in the season of your child rearing? Are you pregnant now with your second? Are you, you know, like the, the stage is so, so integral to your current experience. Um, so your quality will definitely be determined by your stage um, of life that you're at. And then in terms of getting back to quality, um, you know, woman, we don't have a formula. There is no, you know, three cups of this, one cup of that, <laughs> a teaspoon of this, and boom, you're done. The thing that worked last night might totally not work tonight. <laughs> and that's really, really annoying for everyone involved. Um, so quality is actually about going slow and being committed to pleasure. So I think we have times now, like Dave and I, where we're like, this is just totally about Joe. And so it's got nothing to do with him, essentially. Like, I'm not in the back of my mind thinking, oh, it needs to be his turn at some point, or what's he getting out of this, or anything like that. Quality is really focusing in on each other um, regularly enough that you get, you're getting a lot of goodness out of your sex life. There will be in this season of little kids, um, and babies, there will be, um, a percentage that is what I call gift sex. So you just, you're gifting it to the other person. So it's not necessarily meeting a huge amount of your needs or you're not really getting, you know, multiple orgasms or even one orgasm out of it but it's a gift it's like an act of romance for the other person so I always think you can you can do about 30% gift sex and 70% needs to be mutual and so if you're giving too much gift you probably need to push pause and you probably need to pull back a little bit and go hey we need I need to get more out of this um woman also we really benefit often from taking intercourse off the table. So we have what I call an intercourse imperative in our society, which is that sex is all about intercourse. So sex is when the penis goes into the vagina and the man has an orgasm. And that's what we see on the movies. That's what lots of people see in porn. It's like that is sex. And so if you take the intercourse out of it, you'll probably have some better quality sex for the woman. So actually, no, we're not going to do that at all. We're going to do lots of other falling around and messing around and playing around. And we're going to get our orgasms that way or have our fun that way. Um, and often you'll get better quality out of that. Great advice. Love that. Taking notes. Um, let's talk about libido because it is, my God, it's such a big topic. When I put it out on Instagram asking people if they had any questions for you, 
like 99% of the questions were about libido. So I guess let's start by talking about the causes of low libido, which we've kind of already covered um, in terms of hormones. But let's take it back there again just to refresh everyone. Yeah, tiredness. (laughs) I mean, when your body is not in a great place, so whether it's healing or it is, uh, you know, experiencing negative mental health, um, or it is tired, it's really using all of its capacity to replenish itself. So it's not using kind of spare energy on libido. If you imagine you've got a particular amount of energy in your body, it's using all of that to cure what has been broken. And so if you've, you know, you're struggling with depression or you're struggling with anxiety, you don't have a lot of energy left over for like, oh yeah, I want to have sex tonight. Like it's probably not there. <laughs> and so I think, you know, it's so, there's so much pressure on women to be little sex kittens and to be like up for it and having like 50 shades of gray sex and like really want to be experimental and like no, we're in a you're in a different season. <laughs> you're in a different place. <laughs> and you are in a um you know, building foundations season. You are in putting pillars into the ground and pouring concrete in and setting up your family and setting up your life season. So it is hugely important season, but it's not necessarily your best sexkin playtime. So I think it's just okay. If you're not fully up for it for however long, it's okay. That doesn't mean you stop having sex altogether. It doesn't mean you stop fooling around with each other. But if you're, if you don't like, if you're not on a Saturday night, like, oh, I just really feel like having sex, then just totally fine. Like, just take the pressure off yourself. It's okay. You're normal. You're not abnormal if you used to want to do that before and now you just want to curl up and watch Tiger King on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah, then that is just speaking to your season of life. Um, So don't feel like you're being a bad partner or that something is wrong with you for the way that you've changed. Um, So I just think, I just my I guess yeah I just my heart goes out to women feeling like they're supposed supposed to be something like they're supposed to fit into this box that society tells them to and now they don't fit into that and it's like oh shit who am I and what's going wrong with me um yeah it's okay it's okay that you don't want to it will come back to you libido will come back <laughs> right now you're putting pillars in the ground and you're pouring concrete in and you're setting up a foundation and all of your energy is going into that and once your children become more independent and you get more time to yourself and you get more time in the day to like read a book or watch Tiger King in the daytime your night times will become different and you'll probably become more playful again and your libido will increase we just often have to be patient with our bodies If women do recognize that they have low libido and for a while they've been okay with it, but now they're kind of like, they want to want sex again, what sort of things can they do to improve their libido? We have this little term, it kind of sounds bad at the beginning, Um, it's fake it till you feel it. So we don't have the same, women don't experience spontaneous desire in the same way that men do. 
So there's in all these models throughout history around how we experience li- like our libido, like that initial excitement or wanting or desire or like that, how you, how you describe it, like, oh, I feel like having sex now. You know, so there's been models throughout a hundred years about how women and men are different. And historically people thought men and women the same. We experience some kind of, um, some kind of desire or, but it can be spontaneous. So we're like, oh, I just all of a sudden feel a bit horny now and then we maybe act on that and we have a building experience and then we get to a climax experience and then we have a down and then we can go up again so we thought that all both men and women work the same way and now we know that they don't so men get more spontaneous desire than women do so men might be in the middle of the day and be like oh I just feel like having me some sex Women, it's way more rare than that. Um, it can happen for sure. And if it does happen, it's more likely to happen when you're ovulating because you've got higher estrogen and your body is naturally more turned on. So be aware <laughs> that if you're wanting to get pregnant or not wanting to get pregnant, watch for those turned on moments. <laughs> They're probably telling you something. Um, your body's wanting to make a baby. Um, but oh, I've lost my train of thought because I'm thinking about making babies and ovulating. Um, I definitely don't want to do that. Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have the same kind of spontaneous desire. So um, you might not have that feeling in the same way that your partner does, um, and that is totally okay. And you might never get it, and that is also totally okay. So fake it till you feel it is when you, you intentionally, like you decide to, go forward and have intimacy with your partner, not necessarily committing to intercourse, but like, hey, let's make out, let's kiss, let's touch, you know, let's do some genital rubbing, let's be in the shower. So you intentionally decide to do that. In some ways you put your body and your mind in that place so you're open to it and then your body starts to respond. So it's catching up to the decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like it seems like maybe a silly comparison, but like if you choose to go out and exercise, you know you're always going to feel better afterwards. So you just kind of force yourself to go out for a run and then you come back and you've got that, I guess, oxytocin high, right? Like is it kind of comparable? Yes, definitely. So it's making the decision, it's being intentional, it's scheduling it in, but not having the expectation on yourself. Like when you go out, you know, to have a run, you're not like, I'm going to go do a half marathon. Like you start and you see how you feel on the day. Like, ah, nah, today's just like a little jog. Or yeah, I'm going to really push myself today or whatever. In some ways, this is a bad analogy because it's forcing your body to do something you might not want to do, which is what I'm not into. But what I am into is putting your body into a position where you're open and you're seeing what comes back. So you're putting it out there and then, hey, what's going to come back to me? And my my mum, actually, we had a, a very open relationship and she has, we talk about sex quite a lot. And everyone in my life, obviously, we all, I talk about sex quite a lot. So it just kind of has a ripple effect. <laughs> um, but she used to say when she was in her early kid phase that what she used to do is start thinking about sex early in the day. So she would start to imagine herself being sexual 
like, so she would start to think about being naked or think about what she looked like, think about them in different positions or whatever, like start to actually kind of develop a fantasy. So you're being intentional about what you're thinking about and what you're practicing throughout the day. And then putting yourself in a position where things might happen, like putting yourself in an app, like in an oven where things might get hot and then seeing what comes out of it. So fake it till you feel it. Um, is often a good strategy when you've got low libido generally. Yeah. And what about for women that have zero libido? Like, for example, I had a question from a listener. She did give the age of the baby. Baby is 16 months and I'm still not interested in sex. It's starting to affect my marriage. Help is at this point, as an example, would this be when you might suggest to someone that they seek professional help? Yeah, so a few key questions there. One would be, um, are you still breastfeeding? Two would be, what kind of contraception are you on? So contraception has been known to lower libido. So that's definitely a factor. Are you on antidepressants, SSRIs, lower libido? Um, And so those are three kind of what I'm thinking about straight away. Uh, for what has the sex been like up till now? So is your body responding to average sex essentially? Like, was it bad? Did you kind of force yourself to do it? Um, did you experience discomfort? Uh, and therefore your body is essentially remembering that and not wanting it. Because why would you want something that's average? It's like nobody wants to go and get immunizations. Like, you know how it's going to feel. It's like, oh, nah, I know it's good for me, but nah. So (laughs) similar experience can happen with sex. Your body's like, why would I want that? No, shut it down. So what's the history there been? So it's kind of like, this is your biology, like what's happening for you and your body right now, medication, et cetera, hormones. Um, And then what's the history between you and your partner? Also, what's the relationship like? Are they helping with the baby? Are you getting time alone? Um, and then when you are wanting to experience intimacy, is it that you know you're going to have intercourse? Like it's, you know that that's how it's going to end. Um, is there an inherent knowing there that it's more about him than you? Where, you know, uh, there are so many layers there. And that is when it can be helpful to talk to a professional because they can kind of, go through all those layers and really get to the core issue um, because it could be just one thing. It could be the SSRIs, the antidepressants. It could be the um, contraception or it could be five things put together and once you identify them, it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together and it's like, oh, this is what's going on and now we can start to manage it. Um, So those are the things that come to the top of my mind. Is that helpful? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's that there isn't a one size fits all and that every situation is different and how we all respond to babies and postpartum in the fourth trimester is different and how partners do have a really big part to play. Um, And so I know that you're really keen with your antenatal classes on explaining to dads or even female partners, you know, I guess what to expect from postpartum and relationships and sex so in a nutshell what is kind of what you like to say to them in terms of setting expectations for them when they're embarking on this time I think in the fourth trimester so you you, and to clarify you really mean like that newborn zero to three months yeah season yeah so I kind of think up to six months up to a year 
for some people, mum just needs to be number one. And so her emotional and physical needs need to be met because she is the primary person meeting the needs of this little baby human. And I think it's really hard for the partners, the dads to get their head around this, but she does become number one. Like she's it for a period of time. And your needs essentially, (laughs) it sounds really mean, but need to be met elsewhere. So not your... um, not your physical needs, but your emotional needs. Like, um, you know, <laughs> it's kind of hard, but she's just like, she's it at the moment. Um, and so what does she need from you? She probably needs you to check in on her all the time. She needs you to make food. She needs you to bring her water. She needs you to do the laundry. She needs you to take the baby away from her. You know, there are like so many things that you can do that are helpful. Um, And that is particularly in that fourth trimester just going to be the world of difference um, to your experience as a family. And then... You come out of that haze of a newborn and it's like you two together are number one. So when mum and dad together or mum and partner are in a good place, that's when you see families really flourish and thrive. I mean, I was a kid's, like I worked with children as a counsellor for about five years. So from five to, and then worked in high schools as well, from age five up to 18. And you just see it so clearly in kids' lives. When mum and dad or mum and mum, dad and dad, whoever it is, are in a good, stable, healthy place, kids know it. They just intrinsically know it's it's a safe place for them to be. When it's stressed and there's tension and it's chaotic, um, when it feels tumultuous, when there's anxiety, kids feel that too and it comes out in behavior or it comes out, you know, in lots of different symptoms. Um, so then after that fourth trimester, mum's number one, then the two of you are number one. Schedule in time together. Do whatever you can to get time alone away from the baby, you know, bring in babysitters, parents, whoever you can. Um, show each other that you're really important uh, and partners, dads, like really take the initiative on this, plan date nights or plan date nights at home, you know, cook nice food, get the movie out, you know, find some fun little activities that you can do online, play a board game. Like it sounds so cheesy and lame sometimes, but it will just go so far in your relationship for you to take the initiative and because then they feel loved and cared for. And when we feel loved and cared for, it's kind of a natural flow-on effect to have physical intimacy. You know, when we feel like we're in a safe place, we often are open to being vulnerable physically. So I think what we try and communicate a lot of the time is just really, really realistic expectations. Like, it's going to be hard and dads, you're going to take a hit. (laughs) 
<laughs> like you just are. Um, and probably any dad that you talk to now who's got a, you know, six week old will tell you, yeah, no, nah, I'm really taking a hit here. Like I'm really feeling this and I'm really sensing that I am not number one on this list <laughs> of people in this house. And just power to you for doing that. I mean, that's a really, really great partner who's if, if they're willing to just come number two for a time. When we talk about priorities, you know, a lot of people talk about um, kids come first. What do you agree with that or do you think it's that um, couple needs to come first or individual needs to come first and then couple? How does the priority in people's lives in terms of relationships look for you as an expert? Yeah, I'm not a super fan, as you've probably already picked up, of the kids always come first thing. Um, I think we've really swung super far in one direction, which is that our kids become the primary focus of our house and like everything revolves around them and and all this little baby. And some of that is helpful. We've really learned to understand attachment needs. We've really learned to understand esteem for kids and how important that is. Um, you know, how we do need to invest in bonding, play, you know, like all of that's really, really great. Uh, understanding their developmental stages, beautiful, great. But we've, I think the pendulum has swung too far where the parents are essentially nothing compared to the needs of their child. And it's like if your baby is up 20 times a night but you're meeting all their needs, then that's the right thing to do. And I've, you know, talked to mums who are crying all day long because they think they're doing the right thing by getting up to their baby 7,000 times, but they're just deeply depressed. And I'm like, this is not great. Like this pendulum is, this is too far. We've gone too far in one direction where the parents' needs are almost invisible, I think. Um, And that's just not cool. It's just not right. And it's not taking into account how much kids respond to the well-being of their parents. And I think, I, I mean, I take it from kind of a lifespan perspective. Like, let's think about how that plays out, yeah, when that kid's four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm not just thinking about a three-month-old baby. I'm thinking about a five-year-old child and how I really want these parents to still be together, (laughs) you know, living in the same house ideally for their baby, for their five-year-old. I really want them to really like themselves. I really want them to have really good self-esteem themselves so that they can teach their kids how to have that. Um, I really want them to feel confident, you know, like – I think that it's a really narrow perspective to just focus on the kids. Um, and I think, in, when, yeah, so when the question is around does the individual or the couple come first, it, that just goes so hand in hand because when you've got two healthy individuals, you've often got a healthier relationship. So if someone's really struggling with their mental health, that inevitably impacts the relationship. So you can't pull those two apart. Um essentially. When we talk about the fourth trimester and I guess postpartum and beyond, we're often 
like 99% of the time talking about mum and baby but I think a part of you know that transition into parenthood you know it's huge for the fathers as well and Mm. there are lots of great conversations happening around mental health and I guess just the awareness that motherhood isn't this picture perfect life on Instagram that we so often see and that's something I'm really trying hard to achieve with motherness but I'm very aware as well that we often don't tell the stories of dads and how it can be a transition for them. So I guess what I'd like to know from you is, you know, that those first three months, mum is, especially those first three months, mum is giving everything to this baby and she doesn't necessarily have time or energy to focus on her partner. But what are some things when she kind of gets out of that haze that she can do to keep him in mind and I guess be aware of his mental health and how he might be coping as well. Yeah, we we talk about this particular system, um, I guess is one way of framing it, which is uh, checking in with each other. So kind of keeping tabs on each other, asking how the week's gone, asking how the week's going to go, you know, Sunday night debrief, Sunday night plan for the coming week. Um, but talking in codes. So I, people find it often quite hard to use words, uh, when they're feeling big feelings. And so talking in codes, you can do this with each other. I find it's really, really helpful for mums to do this with their partners. Um, so, uh, asking on a scale of one to 10, like, how are you feeling today? Or how did work go? Or how is this week gone? And then the person responds, you know, oh, it was a two, it was real shit, it was bad, I feel terrible, whatever. Um, but doing this regular check-in every day, so on a scale of one to ten, how are you feeling? And then the person can respond however they want. Um, and they, if they say anything below a five, then your response is, what do you need? So it's kind of a formulaic uh, conversation. How are you feeling? Zero to ten. What do you need? And then the other person says, oh, I'd really love blah, blah, blah like cool um then you make a plan around that and the other thing is talking about your hopes and dreams so this is something that I find has really been really important for Dave along our parenting journey is he's a real outdoors guy so surfs sails kite surfs anything in the ocean is his thing and so um, he found it really, really hard in those early patches that he wasn't able to get out as much and be with what gave him life, which was being out in the sea. And <clears throat> so we would talk at the beginning of every single weekend about what each other's hopes and dreams were for that weekend. So what do you really want to get out of this weekend? And you've both got permission to say whatever you want. So you could be like, I would really, really love to spend the whole day out at Mirawai or beach for those people who live out of Auckland or um, I would really love to spend the whole day reading or I want to just get one hour doing this or I want to do this one evening I want to go out and see my friends or whatever it is and then you essentially negotiate and try and make a plan to meet some of each of your needs and instantly what happens then is each person feels listened to and cared for And you get to do hopefully part of the thing that is really life-giving or energy-giving to you. So it's meeting both people's needs. Um, And we used to do it in the early days actually even, um, not necessarily every single day, but often for every evening. Like what's your hopes and dreams for tonight? Giving each other permission, like me giving Dave permission to say what he really wanted to do or how he really wanted to spend his time that was going to be helpful for him. 
And so we would, you know, you trade off like, hey, you know, if you get up and at six and go fishing, can I have the afternoon off and do blah, 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 blah. And you feel like the other person's really on your team. So dads, they're often willing to take the hits, but they also want to feel like you're on their team. And that might mean asking them, yeah, what are, what are your hopes and dreams for this weekend, this evening, this holiday, this break, this long weekend, whatever it is, um, and then doing what you can to try and make those things happen. Yeah, amazing. I love that. I I kind of wish I'd had that in my toolbox of things because for me, I've always been very aware of saying yes and um, not stopping Mark from doing the things that he loves. Like if he's like, can I go surfing this weekend? I've always been like, yes, yes, yes. And often I, you know, throughout the first year, not by any of his doing, but by mine, would put everybody ahead of myself. And so then I didn't get to do things that refueled my energy or I tried to be the superwoman who did it all and prioritized myself last. And it's something that I've really had to work through and I'm still working on. But I feel like that's just a really good technique of just opening up the conversation. And also as a mum who is potentially trying to do it all, giving yourself permission to also have those hopes and dreams, right? Yeah, it's you really need your partner to ask you the question though. Mm. Because what they do, the moment they ask you the question, you know that they're on your team. By the very fact that they've asked it, you're like, whoa, okay, they care about me. Yeah. And that is just so empowering. And it just gives you permission to say whatever you want. Like you could just be like, I would love to spend the whole weekend away. But I know that's not possible. But what, so I really, 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 really want to go out for drinks at this time with these people. Great. Um, and then your code language is going to be really important as well. Like you might not have the capacity or the emotional energy to talk about how your whole day went, or it might be kind of boring because like really, you know, you just got shat on seven times. And so you don't necessarily need to go through all the details, but be like, it was a one out of 10 bad. And then, and then they instantly know where you're at. And they're like, what can we do? What do you need? You say not to be shed on again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I need to not. I, I need, need you not to be any more on. nappy changes. <laughs> totally. I'll totally, 100%. Like we often take turns with nappy changes still anyway. But I'll just be like, I cannot deal with any more poo at all. <laughs> That's it. I am finished. <laughs> and he's just like, you've got to be able to say that for the other person to just meet you where you're at. Yeah, totally. I've just got a couple more questions for you. I just want to quickly change tact and talk about when couples are doing it really tough and they're having a hard time and things aren't great. In fact, they're shit and they're terrible and they don't know how to get out of it or where they're going. I guess when should they seek help from a relationship counsellor or a sex therapist or both? Where can they find the help? And what might that look like? Um, this is one couple that we know of. And from when they got engaged, they started seeing a counsellor every month forever. So they never stopped essentially reflecting on their current experience and seeking help. And I just love it. 
I, you know, we we get our cars checked with a warrant of fitness. <laughs> we get, <laughs> and we pay for insurance on our houses and insurance on our um, whatever income because we want to make sure everything's in check and everything's ready to go and we we kind of got all our boxes ticked and we're okay. But we don't do that for our relationships. It's last on the list. So we're way more likely to spend money on takeaways than we are on a counsellor. And I think at some point you've got to ask, if things aren't going well, you've got to ask yourself the question, like, what's my goal here? How long am I in this for? Because if you're in it for the long game, like you're in it for when you die, like you just, you want to keep going and you want to work harder at it and you want it to be awesome, then what wouldn't you give to make that happen? I mean, I think for the sake of our kids, I really want them to see a great relationship. Like I want them to have that in their mind when they're looking for a partner So I will give anything to make that happen. So at the core of that question is really, what are you willing to give? And the moment you feel things are getting too bumpy, like the waves are too big, you can't ride them by yourselves, then I would get a coach. So I would, I would get a counselor. Um, we've done this with our kids. Like the moment we're experiencing too many behavioral issues that we don't know how to manage, we go see a parent coach. Like we actually pay $80 to go and talk to someone and get strategies. Because I'm in this for the long game. Like I need it. I want it to be awesome. I don't want it to be average. I don't, I don't want to be like this four out of 10 parent. I'm definitely never going to be a 10 out of 10 parent, but I want to at least get to a seven. And so, <laughs> and so if my relationship is a four out of 10, I, I totally, that's not cool for me. Um, because it's not great role modeling for my kids. So get help ASAP basically is my response. Um, get a coach in to your life, uh, to help you ride those waves. The trickiest part is the who um, and the how much. <laughs> That's often the hardest part. Uh, so the broader you go with a therapist, usually the more affordable it is and the more specialized you go, the more expensive it is. So if you really want to talk about your sex life and you really want to work on that, then talking to an actual sex therapist means you might only have to do four sessions and not 10 that you would do with a broader relationship counsellor. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's kind of from a practical perspective, what do you really want to work on and probably go specialty for those things because you'll end up spending less in the long run. Uh, but then doing your Warren of Fitness checkups can be really good just once every six months, booking something in, and then if really big things are happening once a month. I mean, I have clients that I see once a week because of such big things happening in their relationships and they've got young kids and it's there and that for the long game. They really want to make it good. They want to, you know, they want to crack seven out of 10. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. So what's your current rating? Where do you want to get to? And you're probably going to need a coach along the way. Yeah. 
Cool. Awesome. Um, well, I just have one final question for you. And I guess it's, um, I just want to put some minds at ease, I guess, in terms of maybe what women have, the expectations they have on themselves. Um, and it's all around, I guess, what's normal. And we've kind of touched on this throughout our chat, but I kind of want us to summarize by talking about what's normal in terms of the fourth trimester for relationships and sex and what's normal for your sex life when you are out of that season and you know you still have children but they're growing up what is what does normal sex life look like with kids oh I mean oh, it's such cliche eh? there is no normal it's so cliche and I hate that's it all I want it. you to say to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> um there are some basics I guess uh which is that it's probably going to be a bit bumpier like it's probably not going to be smooth sailing it's not smooth sailing for most people so if that is normal for you to be having some issues for you to be having some tension some conflict for you to not be enjoying sex as much for it to be a little bit more uncomfortable all those things are just so so normal and I don't mean that to be um kind of like negative like I don't mean that to be a bit of a downer I mean it to be more empowering that if that's your current experience you know sister we've all been there like it's like so normal that feel empowered that that is okay so if it's bumpy if it's a bumpy road that's cool um, you can probably expect to not want to have that much sex <laughs> until your baby's sleeping through the night I would say that that's kind of like a turning point for a lot of people. Uh, you might be one of those people who's like, after three weeks, you're like, yes, I'm into it. This is awesome. Uh, that, But that would be unexpected. Um, and then I would say up to a year of your body recovering and up to a year of your body also looking not the way you maybe anticipated and you're adjusting to that um, and just essentially learning a new muscle which is acceptance thank you so much for listening to this episode of motherness for more empowering interviews like this one check us out on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you like to listen and if you like today's episode please subscribe and leave a review so more listeners can discover all that motherness has to offer we are at motherness.podcast on Instagram and our DMs are always open if you need advice or would like to chat. I'm Sky Ross and you've been listening to Motherness.